You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Today we're wrapping up a series called Faith Under Fire that I began on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as we're delving into this gospel, we're looking at how those followers of Christ in that particular day had to deal with the Roman culture being so in contrast with their values. And the Christians were just trying to figure out how do we live a life when the culture is headed the wrong way. And we find ourselves somewhat in the same spotlight as these followers. And so there's some great passages of scripture that will help us uh, to understand this. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word today, if you would. And uh, if I could have you just back me down just a little bit, I'm getting a a pushback. Uh, I don't mind if you listen to me, I just can't want to listen to myself back there. Especially when it's like a half a second delay, throws me off. But anyway, today we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Let's read this together. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them when they saw him walking on the lake They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, Jesus, I pray that you would help us as we hear the word today. There certainly is an element of help us to understand. But more importantly, we ask that you help us to obey, influence, I pray, our integrity, influence God, our choices, our decisions. Help us to grow our obedience in following you and representing you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So as we're looking at today's topic, as we look at the story I've always set up the uh, context of, of, a, of a text because it helps us to understand, I say, what the truth that was being communicated was. Because I often say this, text without context can lead to pretext. In other words, we'll just start parachuting our own ideology and our own thoughts on what it meant. We need to look at the context because when you do and you say, okay, if I'm in this context and I read this, 
what would that be saying to me? And this, this passage today is really kind of ironic because as we look at it, I want you to see this. The Christians were in Rome, and we're going to look at this, and they're under persecution, and you kind of go, so what is a storm uh, and, and being in a boat, and Jesus walking out, what does that have to do with Roman Christians and the challenge that they're having? Because Mark was very selective in the stories of, of Jesus' ministry to help. And so a little bit of background to help new folks who are with us today. We see over the history, Christians have been vilified and marginalized. And we find ourselves today, while there's been times Christians have been embraced, their value system, we find our value system is being pushed. It's being marginalized. It's being mocked. It's being put down. It's being even told, you know, uh, you're intolerant just for even having an opinion that might be different than what mainstream is saying. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is what has happened. Rome was burnt to the ground because of Nero. Nero needed a scapegoat. And what happened was it was really easy to blame the Christians because it wasn't the fact that they were rising up against the state of, of Rome. They weren't, they weren't threatening anything. They weren't rioting. They weren't doing anything. The sole reason the Christians became the, the lightning rod on this was their value system. Their values were different than Rome, and Rome was moving further and further away from biblical principles. The Christians, they just had a different definition of marriage, and Rome was changing all that. And so it became a problem uh, for Rome that, you know, you Christians aren't being compliant. Christians had a different idea of sexuality, and Rome was going completely more and more distant from the Christian values. Rome had a whole different value system as it related to kids. And Christians said, well, these are our values, but Rome said, and it just finally, it proved that this, this could be a, they were a great scapegoat for stuff that was happening in society. It's their fault because they're not coming on board. It's their fault because they're not cooperating. And basically it turned into state terrorism. The Christians were being put on trial for their life, not because they had actually done anything. It was all because of their belief system. And I say this, I even mentioned this about the kids. Their value system of kids was, was radically different than what Rome was having. And so we find we're, we're actually living this out a little bit today. I would like to tell you the main purpose of any society, of any church, of any parent, of any teacher, of any per anybody who, who has children. How, would, how many of you would like to know the number one principle for kids? Okay, I'll talk to all 20 of you. The rest can live. Number one, protect the innocence of the young. That's it. Protect. This is why parents go, where are you going? Who are you going with? When are you going to be home? If I want to find you at a certain particular time, where, why? Because you're monitoring the innocence of your child, right? You want to make sure they don't get into something or get exposed. Who's going to be present? Do you know the names of those adults? And I know some of you adults, you run background checks. You just don't tell your children. Okay? Why? Because we're all trying to protect the innocence of our children. Okay? And that's the job of anybody, whether, no matter how. But we see our society is moving away from that. And for those of us who go, no, that's the core value. You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to have that as the main core. You protect the innocence of the children. Any society that has not done that has found a cultural unraveling. 
It didn't happen overnight, but it happened. Don't destroy the innocence of kids. How many would like, just as a bonus factor, what rule number two is? Rule number two, don't violate rule number one. (laughs) Okay, that's rule number two. Don't violate rule number one. There's unintended consequences and and fallout that can't even, some, some of it can be predicted, some of it cannot be predicted, but I'm telling you, it always has significant fallout. So today we're entering a phase in culture where people are trying to make the new political and cultural shifts, the new doctrine of the church. And I'm going to just kind of give you maybe a new twist. I've shared that principle every week, but I want to share maybe just an observation. And it's this. I I find it ironic that there's this pressure being put on churches, and I will just tell you publicly, church leaders, okay, to, oh, come on. You guys are so intolerant. You're there like, no, wait a minute. You have an opinion and somehow that's good. I have an opinion that's different and I'm intolerant. But your opinion's tolerant, but my opinion's intolerant. I'm, I'm just, so I thought that was part of our culture is the fact that we could have diversity of opinion and still get along with one another. But there's this push about trying to get the church on board. And, the, and I'll just tell you this, the pressure is ramping up. But here's what I want you to know. They're acknowledging by that pressure that we are influential. Just think about it. They're saying we can't go forward if you guys don't shift. Oh, I thought you said we were margins, you know, out in the margins. We were the fringe. We were this. We were that. But why is it so important that you get me to come on board with all this new agenda stuff? If I was so insignificant, wouldn't you just go around me and leave me to to my own belief system? And by the way, that's exactly what the Christians found with Nero in Rome. It was so, why was it so important for Rome to get the Christians to cave? Because they were influential. Their lifestyle stood out from the rest of Roman society and was such a stark contrast that Rome says we can't fulfill our agenda with these people holding out. They weren't in the streets rioting. They weren't threatening anybody. They weren't doing anything illegal. They weren't doing anything covert. They were just good people living their good life. And Rome said, we can't have that defined as good because nobody will come on board with us, so we will eliminate that and redefine what good is. Keep living your good life. It's having more impact. It has more influence than you can ever imagine. You don't have to rant. You don't have to rage. You don't have to, you don't, listen, just because you think it doesn't mean you need to put it on Facebook. You know, somehow, just living the life is a powerful statement. You know, I just, just live my life the way that I think God has called me to live it. I'm not, I'm not waving banners. I'm not threatening people. Hey, the Bible even calls me to love my enemies for Pete's sakes. Why would I want to isolate the people that disagree with me? I'm supposed to love them. It's hard to love them if I won't talk to them. Okay, or I do something that pushes them away. Okay, 
Back to the sermon. <laughs> so as a result, many Christians today are under pressure to become more Roman in their belief than biblical. Let me tell you, that's not a new theology. It's not a new biblical perspective. It is old Roman culture being recycled. This stuff has already been tried. It has already failed. And like I said, it doesn't happen in a year. It doesn't happen in two or three. But there's a slow unraveling. And that's why we need to be careful. So as we look at this passage today, as I said, we probably are going, what is the story of Jesus being in the boat and there's a storm? What does that have to do with Christians who have been condemned to death? And why would they even be interested in that story? Because one of the things about the Gospel of Mark you need to recognize is this. They didn't have copy machines. So there's a copy of the Gospel of Mark. So the way it worked was whoever had the Gospel would go and circulate among the cells or anybody who was in hiding, and they would read it out loud. Your ability to absorb the Gospel was based on your ability to hear and remember. Because there was no copies to hand out. So it was very important to be able to listen and pick up the story and remember it. And so the gospel, especially Mark, is written what we call narrative form. It was meant to be read out loud, so it's a little bit different uh, than just a book that is meant to be read in private. It is meant to be understood as you, how many know there's a little bit difference between writing a paper and then writing a speech? Okay? You just change some things. And that's what the gospel of Mark is designed to be read out loud and listened to by people because there was only one copy at the time. Okay? And they were listening. To, so as they heard the story of, this, of Jesus and the, and, the, and the storm, what would have been their mindset as they listened and picked it up? We're going to talk about that. But can I, can I take a rabbit trail? There's a few more of you coming on board. That's good. So... I want to show you, I've shown you this like over the last few weeks, then a little, what I call little pieces of the gospel of Mark and how I call it, he customized it for his audience because he knew, listen, I need to give them the stuff that interests them and helps them. Plus he had a, you know, a limited scroll that he could write on, right? So he, how many know he just, the scroll was only so big. So it's like, okay, what are the stories that I need to tell so that they can help them? And one of the, so I've picked out some of these. I'm going to show you one that you've maybe never understood or, or saw. So here's a little bit of insight. Did you know that Mark only records one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross? Now, when we look at all the Gospels, we know that while Jesus is on the cross, he said a lot. Okay, he, he talked about the thieves. He had a conversation with thief on left and right. Okay, he had a conversation with the apostle John about his mother. He had a conversation about the centurions. God forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, he's having a lot of conversation. And he's even talking to God, his father. Okay, there's a lot of conversation while he's on the cross. And John or, or Mark only records one saying. And you're probably thinking, so I know some of you just went to your Bible and you're looking because you have the red print Bible and you're looking to see how many, and you're going, oh, by golly, right, there's only one saying of Jesus recorded. And you're, and you're kind of like, well, wh why would Mark do that? How many would like to know? Okay, I'm getting more of you on board. This is good. Okay, winning you over. So he has one saying, and this is it. Mark 15, 34, this is the quote of the verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How many know, given the context of where the Christians were in Rome on trial, condemned to death, that that was probably something they were saying? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me and my family have been condemned to death. I've kind of left this out, but it's, it worth, it's worth being inserted here. The, the practice of Rome was to kill the wife and the kids first so that the dad would see it. And they would leave the dad to live through the night. And they would kill dad the next day. You know, it was this, this idea that they went out as a family? No. Mom and kids went out. They, left dad, they made sure dad was alive. They wanted dad to watch what happened to his family. And then they would take dad back to the cell and let him sit on that all night. And then tell him, you're tomorrow. You don't think Christians weren't saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I here? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm, I'm here because I'm good. Rome has def- redefined what good is. I'm good. I do what's right. I, I even help my enemies. And Rome has condemned me to death because I don't accept their definition of good now. You don't think Christians were saying that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's showing him is this. Jesus knows how you feel. He says the same thing. He's been there. So the next time you read the Gospel of Mark, there's another little passage as you're reading that going, you'll go, I know why he's had that one sentence and he left everything else that Jesus said on the cross because that's probably the most powerful thing that Jesus said that spoke to them. I'm not the only one who's ever said this to God. Even Jesus said it. Everybody said amen. Amen. So now we're going to look at the story. We're going to break it down. We're going to delve into this a little bit deeper. So let's begin this. Everybody read this out loud. Through prayer, God reveals things that we otherwise would not see or know. And we're going to do a little investigation on this passage of Scripture because familiarity causes us to miss what's actually happening. I'm going to read it slow. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So let me tell you what has just happened. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, the five loaves and the two fish. He's just done that, okay? And so they come off the mountainside, and if my wife and I I've uh, been there a couple times. It's, it's, we, while they can't drive a stake in the ground and go, this is the exact spot, you can look up there and go, I can see a couple spots here where Jesus could have easily been because he would have been up on the side of the mountain and the, and the, and the mass would have been sloping down. So it would have been very easy for him to communicate there. You could see how it could happen, okay? And it says that they went down, they got on a boat, and it says Jesus went back up on the mountain. So that's key. He went back up. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining. And some of you are going, okay. But see, that's again, this is where familiarity of the story causes us to miss what's going on. It says Jesus was up on the mountainside praying. It's night. And there's a storm, and he sees them struggling in the lake. Is anybody putting it together? We've been there. It's hard to make out. You can see the boat on a good day. You've got to wait a few minutes for the boat to turn and your eyes to focus and a few things, and you can sort of figure out what's going on on the boat if, on, a, on a clear, sunny day, looking down. You, you just don't look. and I mean, you see it, but you need a minute to kind of like, oh, okay, they're, oh, okay, I see them pulling. Oh, I see what they're doing. I thought they were pulling up a net, but they're not. They're pulling up anchor. You know, there's just a variety. It just takes a second because of the distance. 
this is at night and there's a storm. And Jesus sees him. I think you have a divine moment right here where prayer has unveiled something that is going on that normally would not be seen by the naked eye. You know why we pray? Because darkness hides stuff. Because in, the, in, the, in hiding stuff in darkness, darkness can surprise us. That's the whole thing about uh, when you, uh, darkness likes to use secrets to undermine us, to twist, to turn, to cause people to be manipulated. Darkness likes secrets. And when, how many know when you bring the light in, everything is exposed, right? Jesus said, the truth will set you free. He never said the secrets will set you free. He said, the truth will set you free. It's bringing things into light. And what we see here is Jesus on a mountainside praying at night in the darkness while there's a storm. And by the way, Thomas Edison hasn't done his thing yet. I'm interested in how he even knew where the boat was because they didn't have a lantern as we would define a lantern. They may have had the ability to have some type of light, but it would have been a very dim and very weak light, and I'm just not sure it could have carried through the bad climatic conditions. See what I'm saying? We get so familiar with the story, we forget to do the observation of like, really play this out. Because Jesus was praying, God let him see something darkness was hiding. They're struggling. Have I ever told you the best thing I can do is teach you how to pray? I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in. I don't know if I've ever said that before. The laughter tells me who was here six weeks ago and who was not. I just identified who you are. Ah. Prayer reveals the activity of God. It reveals things that darkness is hiding so that God's activity can't come to it. We pray because we say, please show me. What I, I, and, I, and I say this, please show me what I need to know so I know what I need to do. But I also follow it up with, please don't tell me everything. I may not go to sleep tonight. Just show me enough so that I know what my conduct needs to be, my choices, who, who do I need to influence, what do I need to do. Just show me enough, God, so that I'm, I'm in compliance. Because here's the thing, you see people in a storm that I don't see. Just let me see it. If, if my role, if I have a role in this, would you please let me see what they're doing? Can you, can you point them out? So praying helps us to see people we'd otherwise never see. Pe prayer helps us to see struggles and problems that people are going through that we would otherwise never know about. And prayer helps us to see what we can do about it. Everybody said amen. Number two, read this out loud. Jesus has not abandoned us to strain at the oars with the wind against us. Anybody here feel like there's days that you're just leaning into the, into the oars and giving it all you got, and by the end of the day, you never moved? And then you go at it again tomorrow, you never moved. It, it, hey, today's a day to do confession, because your confession could encourage people around you. You ready for it? Listen to these crickets, I ain't confessing nothing. Test. How many have ever said, why am I doing what I'm doing? So you just encourage the others are in denial and we'll get them help. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's all of us have had days where, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing that? I, 
I'm leaning into the oars. I'm straining. I'm giving it my best. But there's a wind. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, literally, I'm going nowhere. And I don't know how long I can keep doing this. I don't know how long I can keep pulling. I don't know how, how long. There's, you know, a wind is not something that you get to control. I mean, you can lean into the oars, but the wind is not something that you, and it's frustrating when stuff that is out of your control starts to exercise, stu, exercise control over what you do, and it's winning the battle, and you don't have control over that. It's frustrating. You get angry. Why did I get the sickness and the disease? Why I'm doing, I live a healthy lifestyle. I do this. I do what I'm supposed to do, and now they've told me I've got this sickness and disease. That's not right. People, I could tell you scenarios after scenario where we lean into the oars and there's a headwind that won't let us go where we want to go, do what we want to do, be what we want to be. And what I love here is this. Jesus has not abandoned us. Shortly before dawn, he walked out to them walking on the lake. Hear me. There is a time we need to call out to Jesus. But can I tell you this? If you can't get to him, he'll walk to you. You're lost because you don't know where you are. But you're not lost because he knows where you are. You're only lost because you've lost direction. He has not lost you. You're lost because you don't know where he is and what he's doing. But he knows where you are and he knows what you're doing. And if you can't get to him, he'll come to you. And everybody said amen. amen. Number three, read it out loud. In crisis, it's easy to misread Jesus. Pain and suffering has a way of messing with our view of perception of what's really going on. Um, how many wives have noticed that when you're sick and you're ill, the family still wants to know what you're fixing for dinner? <laughs> I see that hand, 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 I see that hand. I see that hand. See that in. How many women will say, but when he's sick, the world stops? <laughs> see that hand, see that hand, see that, see that, see that. Put your hand down. <laughs> Pain has a way. Suffering has a way of changing how we see the world, how we process it, how we see it. And sometimes we hurt so bad, we're like, how dare somebody else have a good day? <laughs> how was your day? Great. Well, how dare you? <laughs> I'm hurting. I'm in pain. You should hurt as bad and feel as bad as I do. Don't tell me you're having a good day. You can't have a good day with the way I feel right now. Yeah, it just has a way with messing with it. So it says he was about to pass by them. Now, and they thought they, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost. So 
Two things here. Jesus has gone out but to them, and it looks like he's just going to walk right on by. You're like, you come all the way out here, and you're just going to keep walking. And then they think it's a ghost. These are the people who just helped Jesus feed 5,000. If anybody should recognize Jesus up close, it's them. I understand if you're one of the 5,000 and, and you're number 4,122 in the back. But these are people who get face-to-face -face contact. They know Jesus. They're starting to, I mean, they camp out with the guy. They do camping trips. And they don't recognize him. Why? Because the context of panic prevents their ability to re have recognition. Did you know fear will twist your perception of reality? It could be Jesus, but your perception, your the fear will cause us to miss a divine moment because the fear is greater than the revelation. If we let it, fear will call all the shots. Anxiety will call the shots. And Jesus is saying, here I am. It's a ghost. <laughs> you know, I have a second question that I have to ask, and in, in really. So you guys are saying that you know what a ghost looks like, like so you've seen him before? <laughs> I mean, you're just kind of like, okay, how are you so quickly, like, it's a ghost, so what do you guys do in your off time? <laughs> it just seems a little odd that you're so quick to call it a ghost. I would, you know, anyway. Back to the sermon. Number four, read it out loud. In crisis, Jesus responds to our cry and gets into the boat with us. This is how it would have really spoke to those who were listening to this being read. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Do you think those Christians are crying out and they're terrified? Oh, yeah. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. This is the crux of this. this is, there's a couple other points, but here's the crux of the story that they would have heard as they heard that being read to them. Jesus will climb in the cell with me and spend the night here. He's not abandoned me in this God-forsaken place. And my family's tomorrow's entertainment for the city of Rome and, and then I'm the next day's entertainment. Jesus will climb in my boat and he'll stay put. And he'll bring calm to the storm that's in my cell. I'll sleep tonight. Not because what I have to do tomorrow changes, but he's in this cell with me tonight. And he's going to calm the storm that's raging in this cell. And me and my family are going to sleep tonight. Even though we know what awaits us tomorrow. He's here. That's what they would have picked up when they heard this. That Jesus will come to you. He'll come into your boat and he'll calm the storm. Listen, some of the biggest storms are not in culture, they're in our lives.
They're inside of us. They're in our thought processes. They're, they're the stories that we tell ourselves about what we see, what we feel. I would assume most of you know what it's like to have your brain going so fast you can't sleep. I would assuming that you know that there are things that can happen to a magnitude that you lose your appetite and you don't eat. You're not eating, you're not sleeping, and you find that your judgment starts getting cloudy, you can't think straight, you're just trying to take in everything that is going in, and it's just, can I tell you, Jesus will crawl in your boat with you and go, quiet, sleep tonight. Yeah, you're right. Monumental things going on in your life. He may not wave his hand and everything goes clean and easy and everything is resolved, but he can climb in the boat with you because what I want you to see is this. He got in the boat and the storm was calm, but they still had to row. They still had to go to work. They weren't like, well, hey, let's just ride this wind. No, he calmed the storm. There's no wind. Uh, I think we have to... See, some people would go, well, if it's really Jesus, he'll row. <laughs> I don't have to do it. If it's really Jesus, if he can do all this, why can't he row us to shore? He'll calm the storm, but you still got to do some work. We have faith without works is we still have to do our own rowing from time to time. It's just that he'll eliminate the things that interfere with it. And everybody said amen to that. Amen. Number five, read it out loud. Our heart determines what we receive and understand. There's something that is said here that I want to set up this way. How many have ever had a conversation with somebody and then they parachute something into the conversation that has absolutely nothing to do with the conversation and you just kind of turn your head and go, huh? I mean, they just like, just like it's like rolling a grenade in the room you're just like and you did that why I what I'm just trying to tie in what you just said to what the conversation was about and what you find is is this person's been carrying this and just looking for an opportunity to throw it in and it's really not pertinent to the conversation but it just seemed like a good time just to let's throw it in here right now and this is what happens here. You re, there's a verse here that is not in the other Gospels associated with uh, this story of the storm. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And I'm just saying, as a pastor, this is how I go, I go what? Um, Jesus has just gotten in the boat. Did I mention loaves? <laughs> did, did, I mean, what has that got to do with the story? Okay, the key word is this, their hearts were hardened. So what's happened is this, they have gotten in the boat and it appears that there's been a conversation about what Jesus did in feeding the 5,000. The other gospel accounts kind of fill it in a little bit. It says they, got a, they later on approached Jesus and, and they were a little upset at him. They said, why do you keep talking in parables? And why do you keep this and that? And so he's explaining this. And it appears that while the feeding of the 5,000 has gone well, 
There just seems to be there's lack of understanding and what's this about. And then he puts us on a boat and he stays behind and like, what's going on here? I'm just not quite sure. And so evidently it sounds like the conversation around the loaves, how exactly five loaves and two fish turned around and fed 5,000. And Jesus didn't give the explanation about where it all came from. This has become a consuming conversation on the boat. Here's what's good to hear about this. Even when you think you're in the boat by yourself, he's listening. Because it says their hearts were hardened. The word hardened comes from a Greek word which means to lose the power of understanding. You can make yourself hard that when the truth hits you, you don't get it because you've hardened your heart. And so something as dramatic, so it says they did not understand about the loaves. So Jesus gets in the boat and he's trying trying to address them, not just in the current context, but also he's, so how many would like to hear a pastor's conjection? Seven. How many would like to hear your pastor's conjection? What that means is this, you're free to dismiss what I'm about to say. It's no harm, no foul. Trust me, no violation of scriptural principle either, okay? But here's what I, I think, huh, so if that, evidently that was a conversation happening on the boat. I wonder, did that conversation produce the storm? Hardened hearts have a way of inviting storms because you're not listening. See, it says the truth will set you free. So, it's one of my, just, I wonder if the the context of the storm has been created because of their hard hearts. Hard hearts just have a way of creating their own little storms because they don't listen. They don't pay attention. They're not receptive. They're not open to being corrected. Why? Because their hearts are hard, right? Okay, now we're out of the conjecture, and we're back to actual scriptural 100% certainty. You ever read that? Right. By the way, be careful. Your hardened heart might be creating your own storms. All right, number five, six. This is the last point, I promise, unless I think of something else. <laughs> Here we go, number six. The storms of life always precede a new dimension of God's activity. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and have anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on the mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they they placed the sick in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So I'm going to give you a little rabbit trail, just point out. So we oftentimes read the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment, you know, what great faith she had. And it was great faith. But the, the, the actual touching the hem of the garment, believing you could be healed, was not novel to her. It was actually a cultural uh, a principle that people believed. If you touched a holy person, if you just touched their cloak. And we read here, people were taken into the marketplace saying, we think Jesus is going to be coming down this road. So people would say, well, put me here because if I touch his cloak, I can, the edge of it, I can be healed. So you see, she was not the only one. Does that make sense? The, the big faith here for her was she put her life at risk. Because of her bleeding, she was considered unclean. 
and everybody had a license to stone her to death. It was not so much the faith that she had to go touch his garment. It was the faith that she said, I'm willing to die to get to Jesus so I can be healed. I will risk my life. I believe he can change me, and I believe he can heal me. Everybody got it? Okay, so now back, back to the map. So what we see here is they finally got to the other side, and all this miraculous stuff happens. And this would have been telling these followers of Christ, if you get through this, God has a vision, a mission for you that will impact people. And now you're thinking, no, wait a minute, I thought they all died. Well, if you haven't realized this, this human justice systems and human uh, or, uh, organizations and that are not perfect. So let's go back into World War II where the Nazis had these death camps, okay? And the goal of these death camps was this. The rule was, if you check into a death camp, you're not exiting. The goal was is to make you survive and live as long as possible so they could extract every kind of uh, possible energy and talent out of you to do things. But the goal was they literally were going to work you to death. That was the whole goal. Nobody was ever going to leave those death camps alive. And yet, how many know this? We have people who lived through that and were able to survive and tell their stories. And it's almost a, it's almost a contradictory statement. They survived a death camp. Now, granted, some were saved as a result of the Allies coming, but if you listen to their stories, they all had a different set of circumstances that for whatever reason, the regime of the, the Nazi regime was not able to be 100% accurate in executing every person that ever got into one of those death camps. Because sometimes a, bribe, a guard could be bribed internally from the camp. Sometimes somebody from outside the camp would be able to bribe. Sometimes there was a gap in security and they were able to escape. Sometimes they just found favor for whatever reason with a captor and they were granted uh, uh, anonymous amnesty and they got it. There's, there's, there's thousands Thousands of stories of how these people escaped and that's what makes it so interesting because you never hear the same story twice and every one of them is a miracle that they escaped and survived it Rome's execution system of eliminating the Christians was not 100% foolproof for whatever reasons from time to time Christians got out in a, for a whole, other than they didn't deny their faith, they, they were granted clemency. Maybe somebody in government, maybe a soldier had mercy. But there are people who survive, but yet they still may have lost family before they were granted their freedom. And what he's telling them is this you get to the other side, God's got a, a vision and a plan for your life. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick and mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. He was saying, some of you are going to make it. You've been marked for death, but for whatever reason, death will not come to you. You will get out. But knowing that, know this, survival is not God's plan for you. Thriving is God's plan for you. And God will get you out and you're going to go to the villages, the towns, the countryside. And you're going to tell your story and it's going to change people's lives. 
I don't know why God spared you, and I don't know why God didn't spare others. But if he spares you, he wants you to go tell the world what happened and how it happened. Tell your story. If I, I hope you're connecting the dots right now. Your story matters. It may not be applicable to every person you ever have a conversation with, but I can tell you this. Your story has the ability to change somebody else's life. And I will tell you this. The church has not been called to survive a cultural shift. The church has been called to thrive in spite of a cultural shift. Yesterday was not our best day. Today is our best day, and tomorrow will be better. Today is the best day for the church to thrive. Why? Because there's such a stark contrast in how we live compared to where culture says, you need to go this way. We go, no. We're going to be this way. And we're not going to have to riot. We're not going to have to threaten. We're not going to get in people's face and shout and scream and yell and call names. My goodness, I'm going to love my enemies even. Don't survive. Thrive. Tell your stories. Tell people what God has done in your life. Do you see something very unique in the story? It says that the sick were placed where? In the... Okay, say it again. Marketplace. It didn't say, make sure you have revival meetings at the synagogue so the sick can come. I'm not against those. I'm just, but sometimes we substitute something for something else that God wants. He wants to heal people on, market, on the marketplace. That's why our vision says we want to hear connect you to God, one another, and the marketplace. Let me tell you something. You pray for somebody on Main Street and they get healed, everybody will know. Not because you broadcast it, the person you prayed for will broadcast it. You're not going to believe this. I was talking to such and such. We were after finishing up a lunch and I just shared real quickly and there they were and I prayed and this person prayed for me. You're not going to believe it. God healed me at 2nd Main. Wow. People will talk. They'll talk. People will take note because they go, wow, so your God works every, oh yeah, yeah, you don't always have to make it into the side four walls of the church to have his activity. His activity is bigger than the four walls of the church. Don't survive. Don't say, how am I going to make it? How am I going to get through this? No. Have an attitude of I'm going to thrive. I choose to serve well and be well and help others. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet as we wrap up. Would you do that? Come on. Would you just praise him this morning? Come on, lift your hands. I want you to praise him. He's a God who will jump in the boat with you. He's a God who will get you to the other side. He's a God who can help your straining at the oars. You know, he can turn around to where that strain takes you somewhere. And God's got divine appointments if you get to the other side, friend. I'm telling you. Come on, praise him for that kind of plan for your life.